but Adam. Some more exciting answers to the baffling and intriguing questions of science. Up and Adam, science on FBI. Dr. Alice Williamson joins you every Tuesday morning to give you a science fix to kick off your morning best way possible. Now, Alice, we were talking smells and memories, and I want to put it to you. Do you have a particular smell that takes you back to a certain time? It really triggers something for you? Oh, so many. But I think the one that's just popped into my head is definitely at my grandma's, who's sadly no longer with us. Um, She used to make... um, chips and eggs in the deep fat fryer at her house it was the only time anyone used to make them in the deep fat fryer and she'd always serve them to us on this kind of rusty metal board like a tray that had legs and I'd sit there on the carpet as a as a as a youngster with this tray over my knees and the you know the smell of this kind of freshly fried food and the smell of this kind of rusting metal tray so that's a very evocative memory for me. How come you've got you know your grandma's cooking Ted has gone and bunning sausage sizzles with his dad and I've got double blacks at an 18th birthday Look, party. Lisa, I think you're <laughs> gonna have to ask yourself that question maybe off there. Look no. can someone back me up on 0409 945 945 smells that take you back to a particular memory is that great meme where it's like when you cop a whiff of a certain type of alcohol and it reminds you of a time you almost I, died. I do remember um, pineapple Bacardi breezes when my friend Amy <laughs> took some to a party once and decided weirdly to like keep them somewhere safe and put them in the washing machine. What? And then we couldn't open the washing machine. Anyway, that's another story. Yeah. We are talking time. about this for a good reason though because like you've just said, you've just given us a clear memory of your childhood. Smell is so powerful when it comes to triggering memories. And this story really hones that in, this particular research. Yeah, so this is um, a story that's been published in the Chemical and Engineering News magazine from the American Chemical Society. And it's actually a story that's brought together different research stories, um, which is highlighting the fact that there are actually um, plenty of scientists out there um, who sniff things for a living. That's their job. (laughs) And they sniff, and more specifically, artefacts, potentially paintings, pieces of furniture, items of historical interest. And they're doing this for for a scientific reason not just because they've you know they've got they've got this this weird urge to go around sniffing things but that they can tell things about those items by the way that they smell so first of all you know we have this kind of evocative memory of things and by smelling certain sort of types of desks or pens or inks perhaps it gives you a sense of what the author was smelling at the time that they wrote their great manuscript or Mm. where they were sitting uh, and where they were living and what it would have been like at that time but more specifically some of this research is actually looking at um, the smells that are sort of like the the smelly fingerprints of decay for these artifacts. And that's really important because if you can detect the molecules that are responsible for this decay, you can maybe help to preserve some of these artifacts in the museums that they, that, you know, that they're, that they're living in at the moment. Smells are really hard to categorize and quantify. How many times have we been out with friends and said, oh, can you smell that? And maybe they can't. Who's doing this research and where are they doing it? So there's a few different groups that are uh, highlighted in this article. Um, Mm. One is Christine Nelson, who's at the Morgan Library and Museum in Manhattan, New York. There are also some, a graduate student, um, Cecile Ben Bibra, who's a graduate student at UCL. And she's been doing some research, particularly at St. Paul's Cathedral at the, at the library there. Um, and some industry members who are really interested in fragrances. So there's a firm called the International uh, Flowers and Fragrance um, Company who are really interested in the molecules that make up these smells. So these teams are all kind of doing similar things, but in different places. Mm. And they're doing that, that 
very thing that you just mentioned it's very difficult to sort of quantify smell because we we you know we smell things we perceive them in a different way so what might smell like uh, cocoa to you could smell like coffee to me or or something like that mm. so what they're doing is they're actually um doing a, a few different methods so the team who have been working at st paul's first of all started by actually opening up this library in st paul's and inviting visitors in and getting those visitors to report the smells that they could smell in this library particularly what they're looking for here is the smell of the the old books that are you know are giving off these aromas into the room and what happened was that 100 percent of the visitors reported a woody smell uh, over 80% uh, reported reported a smoky smell, about 70% reported an earthy smell, and about 40% uh, you know, reported the smell of vanilla. Hmm. So this is kind of giving us a kind of general sense of the, the aromas that are coming off these books. But what they wanted to do, and what the other researchers wanted to do, is to really um, characterise the individual molecules that make up these these smells. Because much like flavour, you know that we know the, sm- the flavour of coriander, for example, but it tastes very different in a burrito or than a curry. So you, you kind of need to know how those components make up that general flavour or that general smell. So what they've been doing is variations of a, of a method which is really important for curators because it doesn't involve any destruction of the material. Because if you're just smelling something, you don't have to scratch any of the, you know, the precious paper or the paint or anything away from your artefact, which is good. You don't want to go destroying these valuable items. And it's a technique called solid phase micro extraction, but don't worry too much about that. Mm-hmm. It basically involves covering an item. Sounds pretty low tech, really. Um, either with a glass that contains a, a needle that's soaked in paraffin. So paraffin is a very sort of absorbent, um, oily, waxy material. Or putting an item into a bag that contains a carbon sponge. So this is a material that's also super absorbent. It would take in anything that you know was present in that kind of covered space. And it relies upon the fact that these molecules, and we've talked about this before, the smelly molecules are are called volatile organic compounds. The reason we can smell them is because they they become part of the 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 air, the gases around us. That's why we can smell them. So then when these molecules are captured either by the carbon sponge or the paraffin on this needle, we can then take this this material and um, perform kind of traditional methods so where we do gas chromatography and we look for the the fingerprint of each of these molecules and that's how the research is kind of identifying the unique components of of these smells yeah and then that's where the you know the really kind of um, funny job comes in because there are actually people who whose job is to be a sniffer (laughs) Um, and this is you know the case for in the beer industry the wine industry the perfume industry because the human nose despite having these wonderful machines that can characterize very quantitatively what these molecules are and what their concentration is the human nose is much more sensitive than even our most sensitive instruments for certain smells so the nose can pick up things that these instruments can't so what they actually do is once they've quantified which molecules are present they'll get people who are blindfolded to kind of sit at the um you know the opening of this machine and to sniff what's coming out of the machine in these fractions and to identify that scent um and it's such an intense job that apparently they only work for 15 minutes at a time so that sounds like a pretty good uh, career move for, yeah. for anyone who's got a very highly trained nose and you can pick up on these molecules so they can tell you know what these characteristic molecules from these books are so there's a molecule 
molecule that's responsible for the woody smell. D-limonene is for the orangey smell of books. Benzaldehydes has these fruity smells. So there's there's lots of chemistry involved in you know the decaying process of these artifacts, and that's what these researchers are looking for. They're saying if we can detect that this paper is is decomposing, it could be giving us molecules that are actually promoting the decomposition of other artifacts within the collection. So we need to find a way to slow this down or to separate them so that say something gives off an acid which happens in the case of some films like cellulose films from old kind of movie pictures that could actually cause other items in the collection to decay so it's important to know what's going on and you could do that by just having a good old sniff where do they see the research heading in the next couple of years now so that I, they've stumbled upon this? So well, I not think, stumbled, but... Well, no, so, so I think really, um, really it's in, in preservation is one of the main things, seeing if you can detect that, you know, some nitric acid's being given off a certain uh, artefact, you know that you need to either change the temperature or the the humidity or move it to a different room so that it doesn't start you know catalyzing a decomposition of other items in the room also trying to build up the smells of history so what things did might have smelt like at a certain time i know there's a museum in york in the uk called the jorvik museum and as you walk around they've tried to make this this museum smell like it would have done um on the streets at the time um wow. it's not the most pleasant of smells mm-hmm. because people weren't quite as keen on showering and um you know keeping themselves clean and they weren't able to because of course we didn't they didn't have a you know showers and plumbing and all these sorts of things but it's that idea of you know really smelling the past and understanding a different aspect of of the past definitely you can have a sniff of this story over at fbiradio.com slash programs if you click through to up for it alice We've spoken on the on the program before about how we need more women in science and also tech, and this story really brings that to light. Yeah, this is a, a really great article that I read on the ABC website, written by Ariel, Ariel Bogle last week, who is a presenter on Backchat on the weekend. Yeah, so um, she's she's written this um, this great article that's based on some research that's been done by Professor Deb Verhoven, who's at UTS, so mm. a local professor, um, and her area of research is 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 doing something called um, she uses social network analysis so she she uses um, sort of uh, she stud- studies social structures in some of her research um, using networks so basically you can have individual people are sort of the nodes in this network and then the lines that join people show the relationships between people and you can do this for all areas all sorts of areas of sociology research mm. um, but this particular piece of research is actually focused in on um, some forms of Australian um, research funding and the two specific areas that she's looked at are the Australian Research Council linkage infrastructure grants so Mm -hmm. these are grants that are used to buy equipment that's needed for research and the National Health and Medical Research Council grants and she's looked at these um, for nine and 15 years respectively Mm -hmm. looked at how these these grants have been distributed and found that um, for the LEAF grants um, in in the period between 2008 and 2017, 79% of the recipients were male. Wow. And for NHMRC grants, 82% of the recipients were male. And this is the, the kind of point of the article. This is the, the next statistic is that for the NHMRC grants, um, 84% of men who received a grant only worked with other men. So they're on a team that's only consisting of male researchers. 
Um, and you know, this is this is sort of highlights one of the problems of of trying to Im- improve gender um, equity in science. If if there are some men who only work with other men, particularly if they're at higher, you know, later stages of their career, it's a problem for trying to bring through um, fresh talent and to trying to to kind of balance this inequality that we have in science. Those stats are really quite incredible but you know, but not in a positive way you know and it kind of reiterates the fact that these industries are being or these fields are being deemed as a bit of a boys club where does dave come into it <laughs> so yeah this is this has got a really nice art um really funny headline i thought so it's the diversity problem because the other thing that they've picked up on in this research is that for the the leaf grants the equipment grants there were over this period, 131 men came, named David got a grant um, compared to 15 Jennifers. And they've picked David's one of the most popular male names. Jennifer's one of the most popular female names. And for the NHMRC grants, there were 51 Davids who got a grant and only six Susans. And Susan's the most popular female name. So it's just kind of highlighting the numbers of people um, called Dave who are getting the grant is, is actually significant, which is just kind of emphasizing this problem with the with gender inequality in mm. terms of you know the receipt of these grants and the problem is that i guess for research there are sort of two main currencies one is um the the research funding that you get so this you know the grants you receive so that you can afford to do the research that you want to do and also the papers that you publish and how many citations they get so these are some of the metrics that are used to measure how successful you are but if you don't receive grant funding it's very difficult to do research that's um, competitive that can go in really good journals and get lots of citations so if you don't have access to the money it's you know it's a problem to begin with and this is something that we need to you know, really address. Yeah. How how can we do better? How can we change? Well, there have been, um, as part of this article, there there were um, two spokespeople, one from the NHMRC and one from ARC, who spoke about this. The NHMRC spokesperson said that they're working to address the loss of female ta- talent from this research. And Professor Sue Thomas, Thomas from the ARC actually pointed out that some of the differences in the number of, the, you know, the these numbers could be the fact that the proportion of female academics in some of these areas is lower. So that's certainly true. Mm-hmm. And that in terms of the equipment grant, um, the, the kind of distribution of women across different areas could be skewed towards or is skewed to the humanities. Mm. And so that means that um, there aren't as many women applying for research grants needed for scientific equipment. This is So this is, you know, true, but it's still something we need to do um, and I, th- we, there's still something we need to do to redress this balance. I, I, I certainly think that's my opinion. Um, and I think one of the main things that's highlighted by the authors of this study and some um, commenters um, from the, this piece, uh, or commentators rather, um, is that really what you can do from this, this beautiful, these beautiful networks. That you know they're shocking, but they're very beautiful when you look at these images. If you yeah. look at the link. Um, you can actually see the men who only work with men. They're kind of highlighted um, in in a certain colour on these charts. So if you start to talk to men who only work with men and encourage them to start working with women, you can start to see if you could make real structural change. If you start, you know, trying to um, solve this problem, then maybe we could redress the balance um, in research. Definitely. It's certainly true that there are more senior professors in science subjects who are male. So we know there's something called the scissor plot that's talked a lot 
about in in research which is basically that if you plot a graph of the men and women involved in in stem research across all disciplines for the early stages of academia so undergraduate phd even up to the early stages of academia it's pretty much 50 50 between men and women and then it departs so at the next stage up it's 40 60 and then it's 30 70 and by the time we get to professor it's 20 80 so there's 80 percent wow so that's something that organizations like sage um who are trying to work for um gender equity as well as other forms of diversity which we also need to improve on are really trying to to change this and I think the first step is actually having this data and having these conversations because until we have this data presented to us and start to think strategically about what we can do it's kind of difficult to to think of a way to move forward Mm. so hopefully in 10 years time if another analysis like this is done the date the data will be uh much different. And it'd be interesting to see this being applied to the arts and music communities as well. Yeah, well, certainly Professor Verhoeven, who, who did this research at UTS, she's already done this sort of analysis for the film industry. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that this applies um, to many industries, if not all industries, and something we should be aware of and, and you know continually strive to improve. Definitely. When she actually saw the results of these data maps, I read in the article that she actually broke down yeah. when she saw it. So I would highly recommend you check it out too. Have a look, see the visuals of it and read the stats over at fbiradio.com or head to our podcast page, which we'll chuck a link to as well. Alice, thank you so much for coming in this morning. We'll catch you again next week, I reckon. Yeah, why not? (laughs) See you then. Have a good one. Bye. This was produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. FBIRadio.com. 